0: Good morning. If we could uh, find our seats, we are going to get started. This morning we will be in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this chance that we get to come and worship you through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would speak through me. Uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, and that ultimately you'd be lifted up and exalted and glorified through, through the preaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we are in, like I said, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light ha- or has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you So in this passage, up to this point in Isaiah, Isaiah was preaching grace that was being promised to God's people. It began in chapter 6 with Isaiah being promised grace when he was in the throne room of God and said, I am not worthy to be here. And God gave him grace in the form of coal on his lips. And then following that in chapter 7 up through 9-7, he give, God gives grace to Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and then to Israel, the northern kingdom. And that begins in this next section. And while this is a passage of joy and rejoicing at the birth of a Savior, just before this we see the anguish that comes with Israel while they are, while they are being oppressed and under the leadership of another empire. In chapter 8, verse 21, it says this, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and that they is the unfaithful. And when they, the unfaithful, are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness this is the unfaithful of Israel, the ones who are worshiping idols who, as Isaiah 2 says, have filled their land with idols. And in the midst of their darkness and their distress, they don't turn to God and call for him to save them. Instead, they turn to God in anger and blame him for their current state. It's the same type of person that's described in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says... For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, that God is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as king, uh, sorry they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but be- they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. What Isaiah describes in chapter 8 is not foreign to any other section of Scripture. This is the exact description of all unbelievers, even in the New Testament, even in our world today. Even though God is clearly perceptible, even though God is clearly seen, they turn from him, they don't, they don't recognize him as God, they don't honor him as God, and in, their, in what they think is wisdom is foolishness. And then Paul, in the, in the following verses, describes them giving up God for their own passions and desires. And then in verse 28, Paul says, "'For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions.'" For their women exchanged exchange natural relations. Oh, I'm sorry, that's verse 26. Verse 28 says, And they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These people, these unbelievers, gave up God for their own idols that they made. Even idolizing themselves and lifting them up, before God. It's exactly what Isaiah 28 describes as the land being filled with idols. The land that was given to Israel is now filled with idols and the worship of things other than God. And because of this, they live in darkness of mind, and that's what the darkness that Isaiah talks about is. This darkness of mind that the truth is not visible, that it is only darkness that they see. But it's not just darkness that they're experiencing. It is also anguish. Verse uh, 22 in chapter 8 says that there is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. That while they are being ruled over by an other, another empire, while they're taken out of their own land into another land, there is darkness and distress. There is, dis- there is darkness because they do not know God and they do not honor God and there is distress because they do not cry out for him, for, cry out to him for salvation. It is because they are being punished for their idolatry and lifting things up other than God in worship. And yet, in their sin, they turn to God in anger and blame him for their current situation. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 1, Israel is, is described as being equal or acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. This nation and the city that Israel looks to as the hallmark of sin and unrighteousness, they are now in equal standing with. No longer are they acting as God's chosen people. Instead, they turn and look at God with contemptuous anger because of their own sin. They don't realize that it's their own actions that have gotten them to this point. They don't cry out to God and that is why they remain in darkness. But this is a section that Isaiah is giving hope to Judah for. It is is in this section that God is giving grace to this country that has turned from him. In chapter nine, we see this hope. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. But even though the this remnant, that's who the her is, the remnant, the faithful few, even though they're in anguish, there is not gloom. There is still hope for the future. They know that God can and will redeem them because of what Isaiah is saying, because, what it, because of what God has promised in the past. This anguish is, anguish is not a dark anguish, there is no gloom. There is still hope despite the anguish there is still hope in the midst of this anguish. That yes, their despair is real. Yes, they feel that despair, but they are hopeful in the midst of it. There is joy. So why can there be joy? How can this faithful few remain joyful in the midst of anguish? Well, in in chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah gives us this reason. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. There is hope because, this, because in their darkness, the truth has been revealed to them. God revealed truth in the midst of their darkness, and now there is no longer darkness because they see why they can hope. They see that there is a Savior that's been promised to them. They now see the truth. They know God and follow him. They don't turn against God in anger and blame him. Instead, they cry out to him for salvation. Despite their state of anguish, they have hope for the future. Because a reason for joy has been revealed to them, and that reason for joy is Jesus Christ, this passage has many, many prophecies that Jesus fulfills. In Matthew four twelve to 17, Matthew rightly equates Jesus' ministry with this passage. He says, Now when he, Jesus, <clears throat> had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah was, might be, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Is this great light? Jesus is the reason for this joy, and there's no it's no coincidence that Matthew equates the light being shown on this people with Jesus beginning to preach. Repentance and belief in Him. At one time this people walked in darkness, but God revealed a great light on them, and they moved, they're transitioned, they're taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ through the preaching of Jesus, through the preaching of the word. of the word, And the same has been done for those who believe. The same has been done for us, that we are taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because God has revealed the truth to us. It's not anything that we did. We didn't do A, B, and C to earn uh, acceptance into this kingdom of light. God did the work. He revealed the truth to us. He took us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Of light. It is what God has done and is doing that reveals the light to God's people. And we see the result of the revealing of the light in verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The result is that the faithful are no longer few. The remnant has grown, the nation is increased, and because of this, the joy of God's people is increased. Because of this, joy abounds, and it's equated to two different scenarios. The first is joy at the harvest, the successful growth because of the work of the farmer. The people, the remnant, rejoice because of the growth of God's work. They see the fruits of what he is doing They see tangible results, and they are joyful because of it. Isaiah also equates it to the joy of victory, the joy in the spoil, that after the war is over and the spoil is being divided, there is joy because of that victory. And this sense of victory comes from the truth that they are no longer in darkness. The remnant sees that God is victorious, and they see the light that he is showing, and they have this sense of victory and joy. Isaiah goes on to give descriptions of this hope and the reasons for this hope. In verse 4, the first reason is for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. The yoke of the burden is sin. Of sin is lifted from this people. This yoke gives us the imagery of an ox with a yoke on its neck that it's working and toiling and 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 has a burden on it. But God lifts this burden, lifts this yoke, and gives us a new yoke in Jesus. And Jesus tells us that this yoke is easy; that His burden is light; that He has done the work, done the toil to release us from the sa- slavery. Isaiah also describes it as the rod and the staff of the oppressor. It's this imagery of suffering and discipline and punishment. But that is no longer what's going on. God has broken that, he says, as on the day of Midian. And it's this imagery we get from, from the story of Gideon and, and releasing Israel from the Midianites and if you don't know that story, I'll give a quick overview. The overview that Gideon, this man from the weakest tribe in Israel, is called to defeat the Midianites. And Israel, this happens in Judges. And if you know the story of Judges, it's just the cycle of Israel doing what was right in their own eyes, being punished for their sin, and then crying out to God. So we get Gideon at the at the end of this cycle. Israel's crying out to God, and God calls him to defeat the Midianites. And when once he, he answers that call, he gathers an army of 32,000 men, but God says that that's way too many. He says you need, to, you need to have less men, so he tells Gideon to go before them and say, if you're, if you're scared, if you are fearful in this fight, go home. And I'm sure he was expecting like 500 maybe to go home, but instead 22,000 soldiers go home. More than two-thirds of his army goes home. That's enough to fill Staples Center to the brim. That many people go home and leave Gideon with 10,000 soldiers to defeat an entire nation that was oppressing them. And then God says, that's still too many. So he gives them another test. And from that test, 9,700 soldiers go home. So Gideon is left with 300 men. And then God says, here's the plan, here's what we're going to do. And they confuse the Midianites. They cause them to fight themselves. And it's in this improbable way with this improbably or impossibly small army that God uses Gideon to defeat the Midianites and release Israel from their oppression. This This level of improbability is what God is equating, or what Isaiah is equating God's victory with. It looks foolish to the world. I'm sure if the Midianites knew that Israel was coming at them with only 300 men, they would just laugh. They would laugh and know that they are going to win. And the victory on the cross looked just as improbable. It wasn't a conquering hero that came in from heaven on a, with a flaming sword and conquered the Roman government. It was a carpenter who was born in a manger who died on a cross, and that's what brought victory to believers. It looks improbable, it looks foolish to the world, but ultimately, it clearly points to God. That you can't say Gideon did what was needed to win that battle. Clearly, God was at work. And clearly on the cross, we see God at work. The only difference is that the joy from the victory on the cross is far greater because the liberation of a, from a pre, or the oppression of sin is far greater because the oppression of sin is far greater than any of the oppression that the, that the Israelites had at the hand of the Midianites. This victory is so improbable that it's clear that God is the one who's responsible. That it was by a willing sacrifice that we experience this joyous victory that leads to an eternal time, or that will lead to an eternal time of peace. And in verse 5, we see the establishment, or the beginning of the establishment of that peace. It says, "...for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire." that the, the tools of war are no longer needed. Psalm 46.9 gives us some similar imagery. It says, God makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. In Isaiah 2.4, Isaiah describes a simil- another um, example of God establishing peace. He says, He will, be, he will judge between nations, And shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This this kingdom is so well established that peace is clearly clearly what is happening in this kingdom, and they throw everything that's used for war away. They turn it into tools for farming, into tools for harvesting. They take their garments and their boots for war, and they throw them into a fire because peace is established and it will go on for eternity. That no longer are nations settling disputes between each other, but they go to God for settling disputes. That the battle has ended, the war is won, and peace is established. There is joy because the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of God's beloved son, is here. In verse 6, we see the birth of this son. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the kingdom shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Obviously, Isaiah is speaking prophetically. This This wasn't a child born while he's talking or before he's prophesying, but he's speaking for the future. This doesn't happen for a few centuries, but it's clear that he's not just talking about the birth of another son from the line of David. This is the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, that's promised in Genesis chapter 3. These descriptions are all descriptions that are given to God. And we know that Jewish culture was very careful about blasphemy. This wasn't a culture that, that said that their king was also God like the Egyptian culture. But it was one that made sure that they didn't equate, equate uh, divinity with any n- human person. That's why Jesus, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, that's why they were getting ready to stone him because they thought they were, he was speaking blasphemy. But these descriptors are given to, to the Son of God, to, to the, both the child and the Son, the human and the divine. And we know that this isn't just a normal child. To us, this child is born. To us, he is given to those who reject God and seek after man-made idols. This child is given. It is a divine gift of grace because God loved the world, as John three sixteen says, and also because, as Genesis or as uh, Isaiah nine seven says, because of His zeal, He does this, and because He is faithful to His promises. So, who is this child? What are these? What do these descriptions mean? The first one is the government shall be upon His shoulder, as we talked about in Colossians last week all rulers and authorities and nations are under the rule of Jesus. Paul Tripp also talks about how it's, how he frees us from our own self-rule. He frees us from the rule of the flesh, that Jesus brings us out of the kingdom of darkness. He brings us out from the rule of other nations and other rulers into the rule of himself. He breaks the chains of our bondage to sin and saves us From our doom. It's nothing that we did. It's nothing that Israel did to earn this child, but God has given us Jesus. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This is someone who makes wise plans, someone whose plans are perfect. Sin renders us fools, sin makes our plans imperfect. We see falsities and also see truth. We look at what is bad for us and think that it's good. And at the very center of this is a denial of God and who he is. It's lifting up other things, especially ourselves, before God. Wisdom begins with right understanding of who God is. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Understanding that he does exist and having a proper fear of him, one that doesn't drive us to run away from him, the one that causes us to revere him and see him for who he truly is. In Isaiah 28, 29, it says that God is wonderful in counsel. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, it says that, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The, these are all descriptions given to God. He is wonderful in counsel. He is wisdom. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four, Paul calls Christ the wisdom of God. Our Savior is a wise counselor, one whose plans are foolproof. Isaiah goes on to describe him as mighty God, there's no mistaking, because of this, there's no mistaking the deity of this child. He's not just saying that it's going to be another, another king like Solomon who is wise and, um, and acts as an everlasting father. He is mighty God. We do not need yet another imperfect ruler. You can look at every country's history and see a string of imperfect rulers. It's not just another child from the line of david this child is mighty god and unless it truly was god isaiah would be speaking blasphemy because this is a title given to god himself it is one that we see in isaiah 10:20 to 21 deuteronomy 10:17 and jeremiah 32:18 all of these verses are just examples of god being declared mighty god jesus we see knows that he is God. We see him accept worship from his disciples. We see him declare himself to be God before Abraham was, I am, he says. And God, God even declares him to be his son at his baptism. He, we see that throughout his, his ministry, we see the power of God with him, in him. We see him being omniscient, omnipotent. We see him doing things that no one else does, Ultimately, we see him be resurrected from the dead. Then the next description is everlasting father. Because Jesus opens up our access to the father. No longer is there a gap between God and man. No longer is there a need for a a holy of holies or for priests to go before God on our behalf. Jesus has closed that gap. It is because of what he has done on the cross that we can go before God. He repaired the relationship, and because of that, we have direct access to our benevolent protector. And that is the task of the ideal king, that he acts as a father to his people. That he doesn't do what is going to be detrimental to to his people, but instead, he is a benevolent protector. And Jesus describes God in this way in Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 to 32. He says, "Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they?" O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Our heavenly Father knows exactly what we need. And as our Savior and King, Jesus knows exactly what we need, and he provides it for us. This child that Isaiah is describing in Isaiah 9 has all of these attributes. He knows exactly what we need and will provide it. He knows how to care for his people. And as believers, we are adopted into this family of God. And when we are adopted into it, God is our Father. The next attribute is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is a ruler who will bring bring peace because the nations will rely on his decisions, not on their own. This kingdom will be one of peace and prosperity that will last forever. Our kingdoms are marked by chaos and division and fighting, but Christ's will not be. We even see that in our faith that that as Christians, are churches are divided into denominations or non-denominations and split. But under Christ, we will all be united and there will be peace. And why wouldn't there be peace? We see from the beginning of his ministry that he is uniting us. He unites us with himself that even though we were still enemies with him, he has reconciled us. Through him, our sins are forgiven. Because of him, we have peace between God and and man so of course his kingdom will, will be one of peace because it is ruled by Christ as our lord and savior not by and he won't be governing us against our wills he won't be making laws that we will we won't want to follow but he will be governing us by influencing our hearts with his wonderful counsel with his wisdom and with his grace he'll guide us because we know that he is wonderful in counsel. In commenting on this, Ray Ortland says this. He says, look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies e- easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies let's welcome his dominion. And this dominion, this kingdom will be everlasting. We don't have to worry about it coming to an end eventually like every other kingdom we've ever seen. Ancient Rome, Napoleon's Napoleon's empire, uh, Nazi Germany, these all came to an end partially because they invaded Russia in the winter, but also because God is in control. Ultimately, Jesus's kingdom will, will not, never come to an end. Even America will come to an end, and that's okay with me. I'm proud to be an American, but I know that ultimately this is not my home. This is not where I belong, and this is not where we as believers belong. We are citizens of a much, much better kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and this kingdom will be ever-increasing. It will forever expand. And imagine how that sounded to the remnant. This was, a, this was a group that was no longer ruled by the Davidic king. It was a group that was so few, and, and even their brothers and sisters and fellow Israelites were turning from God. It was a group that only knew division. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, They'd heard of the unity of Israel, but it was no longer tangible to them. They, like us, were tired of the divisiveness. They were wanting unity among God's people. So this prophecy would have been a great comfort to them, and it's still a great comfort to us today. The establishing of this kingdom wouldn't just fix small problems here and there, but it would completely set a new standard for righteousness and justice. It would be a kingdom without sin and evil. And he will not only establish it, but he will also uphold it. He won't just come in, establish it, and then someone else will rule. But the perfect king, the prince of peace, will rule over it forever. There won't be a change in rule every four years. We won't have to pick an apostle to rule over us, but it'll be Christ. Who reigns and rules forever? There will be no injustice. There will be no unrighteousness. There will be no division. There will be peace and prosperity to the glory of God. And that's why there's hope in the midst of darkness and anguish. That's why there's hope for us in the midst of our anguish. That we see a future ruler of a new heavens and a new earth, one who is a wonderful counselor, mighty God everlasting father, a prince of peace. And we celebrate Christmas because of what has been done and what will be done. We, we celebrate his birth because of what has been done with reconciliation on the cross and what will be done in the establishing of this kingdom. So how will all of this be done? I mean, this is a tall order. And Isaiah gives us the answer. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And it's not the actions of Israel, it's not the actions of anyone except for God, and it's the his zeal that will do this. This word, this Hebrew word, is used to describe the love of a husband for his wife, the love that burns in the hearts of brides and grooms. It's used to describe a warrior psyching himself up just before battle. It's the same word that's used in in Psalm 69.9, which John quotes to explain Jesus' boldness in overturning the money changers at the temple, it's the word used to describe how God feels for his people, that he is a zealous and jealous God. And that is what drives him to do all of this, that because he loves the world so much, he has zeal for how much he loves the world, that he does all of this. He's not wishy-washy, but he is, God, is a God who is faithful to his people even when they turn against him over and over. He's a God who is faithful to us even when we turn against him over and over. So what do we do in light of this passage? Why does this lead us to celebrate? How do we respond to this? The first way is if, if you are an unbeliever, to repent and believe because until you do so, you are not in the kingdom of God. You are still in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus calls us to repent and believe in him as our Lord and Savior. And then we will be transferred into his kingdom. The next way for believers is to be faithful. Obey the commands of Christ. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling and make disciples of all nations. And finally, we rejoice in our Savior. We celebrate Christmas this week because we know what will come because of what he has done. We rejoice in our wonderful Counselor who saves us and wakes us up from our foolishness, our mighty God who rules over us, our everlasting Father who knows exactly what we need, our Prince of Peace who will establish a kingdom of peace that will go on forever and ever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and and for the son that you have given to us that we celebrate this week. I pray that this truth would be at the forefront of our minds and we will recognize how great the gift that you have given us is. I thank you that, that you have done so through your power alone. It's not anything that we can do to earn this. I pray that as we move forward, in our Christmas celebrations, that we would remember to celebrate you and that you are truly why we celebrate and rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.